Today we're going to launch a brand new series entitled Why Jesus. Over the course of this next season, for the next 10 weeks, we're going to do a Why Jesus series. After that, we're going to launch right into the letter of Ephesians. We're going to try to uh, focus in on what was the context there. We're going to talk about Alexander the Great and the Temple to Artemis and ancient uh, Near Eastern cults and all that good stuff, Um, how the geography worked in the city of Ephesus, which is in the modern-day Turkey today. And then after that, after we get through a couple weeks of Ephesians, we're going to launch right into the Gospel according to Luke. Um, I wanted to share with you a little bit of the trajectory that we're headed because the Why Jesus series that we're involved in right now um, is not as text-based as some of our previous series have been. Like, we're going right through Deuteronomy. Um, When we get to Ephesians and Luke, obviously, we're going to be pulling directly from our text. But this particular series is going to be a little bit different. And today's introduction is going to feature virtually zero Bible. Um, For those of you who come to church to hear a Bible teaching, I'm terribly sorry. Welcome to Spark. Every now and then, you're going to get some stuff that isn't about... Come tomorrow. Oh, come tomorrow night to Garden to Garden. You'll get a lot of Bible in there. Or if you started the reading today, you'll get a lot of Bible today. So... This particular series, Why Jesus, I'm really super excited about in looking at the trajectory of where we're headed. Um, There are multiple ways in which we could address this question, Why Jesus? There are also multiple voices that are going to be sharing. Not only are some of the pastors going to be sharing, but some sparkers are going to be sharing, and I'm super excited about that. Your voice in this congregation is really valuable. What you bring, your story, your testimony, how you think, how you process. And I'm super excited to be sharing and giving an opportunity for some sparkers to be sharing their perspective on why Jesus. And we gave them just a brief outline of where we're headed, but the content is all theirs. There's going to be a variety of approaches. For example, today I'm going to be talking about the American religious context. Uh, next time, somebody's going to be talking about egalitarianism or, or some ethical perspectives. There's going to be a different way of approaching this. And then, of course, as with virtually everything that we do at Spark, the goal is not to tell you exactly why Jesus, and now you must believe this is the reason why Jesus is so important to us, although I'm sure some of that may happen. The most important thing for us is that the conversations that we have, the teachings that we have spark additional conversations, that they lead you down the path of even greater discovery. If you've been around Spark for any period of time, you know that dogmatic assertions that this is the truth and it's absolutely certain is not something that we do here, but curiosity, pushing, asking questions, digging deeper, finding nuance, application, figuring out how that works in your life. That's what we do here. Lots of questions, lots of inquiry, lots of curiosity. So that's a little bit of where we're headed. And the reason why I want to tell you about those other teaching series in Ephesians and Luke is because the Why Jesus series is going to be a little bit of a jumble and diverse mix of all of those things. So in accordance with the beginning of that, the multiple voices, I am super excited. The very first person to share in the series will not be me, but our dearly beloved Rajesh Filippos. Please give him a warm welcome as he comes to share. Yeah, so in uh, true Spark fashion, I have slides. <laughs> so, we'll see. Um, so, in order to talk about why Jesus, uh, let me tell you about my story. Um, I was born and raised in Nigeria, 
till I was 12 years old. And uh, just Nigeria. Okay. Um, I was born in a town called Wari on the west coast of Africa. Um, I didn't know this then, but Wari was once a Dutch and Portuguese slave trading port, and now is a major oil hub. Um, my parents were teachers. Nigeria got its independence from the British in 1960. Um, so it had a lot of oil revenue, and it wanted to get uh, professionals in. So it hired, the government hired a lot of teachers, engineers, and doctors. That's how my parents ended up in Nigeria. Um, while I thoroughly enjoyed my time in Nigeria, um, there were a couple of incidents, pivotal incidents that occurred. Uh, when I was four or five, my child care provider uh, molested me and left me home alone while my parents were at school. Um, it was not a big deal at that time, but without a proper understanding of what occurred, I internalized it as my fault, um, and that resulted later in school bullying and kind of low self-esteem growing up some. Um, another incident I remember was a time when my dad was treating us as the family to a kind of a fancy dinner at a fancy restaurant. Um, we were in the restaurant, but our Nigerian waiter did not serve us. Instead, a couple of white families who came after us um, got food, ate, and left. So that night, we walked out of the restaurant in protest. Um, many years later, and of re revisiting the memory in prayer, I got a picture of Jesus um, as our waiter who served and ate with us. Um, <clears throat> So, yeah, we moved back to India in the 1980s, <clears throat> 1986, actually. It was in high school through the kind of intervarsity equivalent um, in India that I first heard of Jesus as a savior and friend. Um, my parents are Orthodox Christians. Um, they are Christians in India who claim their faith heritage from when Thomas the Apostle, you know, came to India and preached the gospel. Um, Growing up in India, I was a rebel to my parents' religion, but not their faith. Um, I did not understand the Orthodox Church liturgy. Uh, it was in the local language. I didn't understand the language very well since I didn't grow up in India. And it felt distant to me. Also, there was a disconnect between the gospel as I understood it um, at the young age and what I saw in practice. For example, I would question why the bishop would ride in a Mercedes-Benz when most churchgoers could not afford a car. So my grandmother would scold me and say, what do you expect? Do you want him to ride in a bullock cart? And I would say, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, in high school and college, I must have become a born-again Christian like five times. Um, it was refreshing to know of a God who forgave me and embraced me and this was my first conversion. Um, I've had a second conversion. So a little more context. Growing up, um, I saw my dad be generous and have a heart for the poor. Uh, that had an impact on me. My dad himself grew up in poverty, as his parents were poor rural farmers. Yeah, so growing up, I saw my dad being generous, and uh, he had a heart for the poor. That had an impact on me. My dad grew up in poverty, um, but he would tell us stories from his childhood. 
I attended college um, 2,000 miles away from home, near New Delhi. After college, I got a chance to work in many Indian cities, uh, Bombay, Bangalore, and Madras, uh, Chennai now. Both in Nigeria and India, I saw the poor everywhere. I also grew up seeing the legacy of uh, the British colonialism and racism on the native land and people. They took the natural resources from the land while treating people as second class. I say all this because what happened to me and the experiences I have had have helped shape my faith. I was saddened by the fate of so many people and was searching for answers to the suffering and injustice I saw. I came to the US in the early 2000s um, and moved to the Bay Area. It was here that I had my second conversion. It was a slow one, through Bible studies, small group, and reading a whole lot of books. Jesus was not just my savior, but he was also actively involved in the world today, especially with the suffering and the poor, those on the margins of society. I came to see Jesus as someone who actively goes to the margins to invite the marginalized in. He suffers with the suffering, and he weeps with the mourning. If I wanted to see him, I just needed to go where the suffering are. So for two years, every Thursday night, I went to Pacifica, <laughs> the coast, uh, to a hospice home for those dying of AIDS. Um, it was run by the missionaries of charity, and I stayed there Thursday night to Friday morning, um, getting to know those, getting to know the people there, um, and serving those who were close to death. I saw Jesus there, amongst the dying, through their cheerful spirit and their pain. And since then, I've seen Jesus in many people, through the tears of a foster child, uh, the gratitude of the homeless, the kids at BCM, and the smile of Olga, an elderly lady who picks through the recycling from our trash some Monday mornings. So why do I follow Jesus? Because more than I can ever imagine, Jesus loves me and us all. And he especially loves the poor and the suffering. I follow Jesus because he calls me forward. He invites me to join him. He nudges me and cajoles me. He gives my faith purpose and meaning and calls me to pursue justice. Jesus is more than a social activist. He forgives me and takes away my need to compare myself to others. He takes away my envy when I let him. He comforts me when I feel hurt and disappointed. He nourishes me and embraces me. He says, I love you deeply. Now come, let's go to work. That's why, Jesus. Thanks. Okay, Jesus, do your thing. Thank you so much for the work that you are doing in and through all of us. Be with us. Continually show us that way. Thank you so much for Rajesh and for Yazi, for their life, for their testimony, for their presence in our community. Um, we are here to follow you. Um, help us to do that more and more. Thank you for these voices. We bless you and honor you. In your name, amen.
I'd like to announce, friends, that we, are, um, we have a new pastor that's joining the team. This is uh, a surprise to everybody, including my wife right now. Um, I, we went out and began searching because we were in Silicon Valley, and we thought that we needed to do something a little bit more radical if we're going to stay relevant and on the cutting edge of ministry that's happening. So I'd like to introduce you to our newest pastor. Good evening, Please choose the It's real. It's very real. You can go to Germany and get blessed by a robot pastor if you'd like. Now, there are so many implications to this. There's so many different directions that you can go. Yes, this robot is named Bless You Too. Um, I'm presuming maybe a takeoff of R2-D2. Um, this particular... Now, now, in addition to the technological piece, which is really fascinating to, for, to me, and then it gets into like artificial intelligence and what is intelligence, what is consciousness, and all that kind of stuff, and we'll, we can dive into that maybe later at a different series or whatever. What was fascinating to me about this is the technology exposed something that I think is underlying uh, the fundamental way in which we kind of all interact and relate to religion, generally speaking, which is this. The robot, because of its form and function, you get to choose. Notice, did you want to be blessed by a female or a male voice? Like, you have a choice in that particular matter. And depending upon who you are and where you are and how you're feeling, you can also choose what kind of blessing that you want. Do you want the traditional blessing or do you want a, a more St. Francis of Assisi blessing and all these different types of things? And it was fascinating to me when I was thinking about this particular message of running into that, that bless you too is in some ways a perfect example or uh, some sort of end result of what we here in America have been experiencing for actually quite some time. And I would guess that most of us haven't even really considered or thought about it. One of my... core hopes and dreams in my life, uh, that's, that's putting it way too, that's too much. W- one of the, the central ways in which I think about the world is not to try to create opinions really quickly about stuff like this. I want to I understand what is going on under the surface. Like, it's very easy, and you could find all this. Like, the robot is good or the robot is bad. People have a lot of opinions. I want to ask the question, how did we get here to the robot in the first place? What were the forces that were at work that were acting upon us, our humanity, our psychology, and our spirituality, that got us to the point where we get to choose what kind of spirituality that we want? And what I'd like to share with you are some reflections and some thoughts Obviously oversimplified, but I think a a really good way of thinking about how American religion specifically has progressed over the last 250, 300 years. How has it progressed, and how did we get to this particular point 
where not only are we a church, but if you take a look at whatever statistics, there are approximately 300,000 churches in America. And of those 300,000 churches, there's approximately 200 different denominations of just the Christian brand alone. And I was really offended that in the midst of this entire list, Spark wasn't there. So Spark actually belongs right there. So 201 denominations, because in many ways, we fall in line with this. How many of you chose to be here? In fact, we've had multiple conversations with people who have said that I was once at one place and I chose to leave. The fact that you had a choice is what's fascinating to me. That's what's fascinating to me. So what I'd like to do is ask the question, how did we get here and how does that influence how we think about other religion, Christian expression, the complicated mix of socio-political context and religion that many of us are wrestling with right now. And I'm hoping some of this will be helpful. Some of us like to look at um, personal um, reasons or, or personal like attitudes. As my artist statement explains, my work is utterly incomprehensible and is therefore full of deep significance, right? So this inner philosophy is what is driving us. So there's this uh, appeal to some sort of character issue. This is the reason why you choose. You choose and you left and you chose this religion because of some sort of character uh, perspective. Some uh, look to the culture, specifically philosophical culture. Uh, if you've been in Christian circles, you know that there's a strong argument against movements towards relativism. Uh, there's all of these discussions that are had there. Uh, some people, of course, are going to blame social media because social media is the reason for all the bad things that are happening. So instead of picking up your cross, people are picking up Facebook and following their own whims and different types of iterations of that. There's a lot to say about this, but I'd like to narrow it down to three things. Can you say these three words with me? Because I want you to own this. First word is shopping. You should be not surprised that shopping is going to play into part of how we have come to the American religious experience. Second is sorting. And the third is safeguarding. So say it with me again. Shopping, sorting, safeguarding. And it's a movement that has happened that started way back in 1785. At the very beginning of the founding of this nation, for many of you who know, immediately after uh, escaping what would be considered an oppressive or utilitarian or authoritarian or state-driven kind of governance as well as religion, the founders of our country had new ideas and new ways of thinking about religion and governance and all of that stuff, and, and all of this is going to be conflated together. And in 1785, Thomas Jefferson penned a new way of thinking about religious freedom called the Virginia Bill for Establishing Religious Freedom. Look it up, read it. It's really fascinating. At the very beginning of this statement, there's an idea that was birthed specifically in America that I don't think has a correspondent in other parts of the world. The document, the bill, starts off with this phrase, an act for establishing religious freedom, whereas Almighty God hath created the mind free. Almighty God, this is a theological premise, that Almighty God hath created the mind free. And of course, the, the assumption is that the previous way in which religion was expressed was a state 
driven religion in which your freedom was minimized and the state religious way of expression was maximized. And so founding of this nation, the freedom of religion, my mind should not be shackled by that kind of expression of faith. And so we are going to now declare theologically that my mind is free. It goes on. This is just some excerpts. Be it enacted by general assembly that no man shall be compelled to frequent or support any religious worship, place, or ministry whatsoever, nor shall be enforced, restrained, molested, or burthened in his body or goods, nor shall otherwise suffer on account of his religious opinions or belief, but that all men shall be free to profess and by argument to maintain their opinions in matter of religion. And that the same shall in no wise diminish, enlarge, or affect their civil capabilities. Now notice this. You, as part of the American religious experience, are free to profess your own opinion of how you express yourself religiously or what kind of faith you should have. Now, does this sound familiar to you? Does it sound like something that's written in a really important document in America? Yes, because it was this document that was the precursor to the First Amendment of the United States in 1770, whatever that date was, that says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now, what you have to understand at this particular point in history is there was a fundamental break from an established way in which all people are to express their religious ideas and ideals, how you or to express your faith, and the religion that we practice, this break from the control of the state to how I personally, spiritually practice my faith. This is what's known in political circles as disestablishment or the famous phrase from Thomas Jefferson, the separation of church and state. Hopefully this is just a little bit of review, but this is really critical and important to understand the foundation for how we came up here, how we arrived at this particular point. This disestablishment clause, the separation of church and state, founded in the 1800s, became a really central aspect, not only of religious life, but of economic life, of political life, of basically how we live. Embedded within this culture, specifically of American religious expression, are these concepts, choice, freedom, liberty, and individuality. The separation of the church from the state created whole new categories by how we think about our religious ideas and ideals. Does that make sense? Are you with me so far? You have the freedom. God has given you a mind. You have an opinion. You should be in a place where you are free to express that opinion. Are there problems with this? Yes. And again, no. I heard somebody say no. Oh, the conversation has begun. I'm not making a judgment as to what is good and what is bad. I'm trying to understand. So first Aspect, first nuance. Without the state's authority, there are no state funds. So what do you do? How do you pay for the bills? How do you pay for the building? How do you pay your clergy? How do you buy your pastor a Tesla or anything like that, right? How do you do that? I'll need to strike that from the podcast. So number one, how do you fund this thing, which has economic implications? And then number two, Perhaps what's most important is how do you understand what is authoritative, what is true, what is right? And without the state's authority, the authority then moves to me. 
I get to decide in some ways how this works out. If you study sociologists who study religion, they will call this shift in the 1800s that we are still experiencing today the creation of the free market for religion. And just like we have a free market capital, we also have a free market for religion. Now, this is what sets the foundation, the cultural milieu. (laughs) This is what sets the foundation, the context by which you get all sorts of different expressions of faith and religion. And you also get this move towards religious leaders trying to win your affections. I want you to believe in what we're doing. I'm going to try to lure you in. I'm going to advertise you. I'm going to outreach to you. This is my promise. This is what you are going to get as a result of being a part. And you as the people, guess what? If you're a part of an institution that you don't like, what can you do? Now that there's a free market, you get to leave and you get to find your own. This, I think, cannot be overstated how critical this American context has been to the shaping and the forming of how we think about our faith practice. Once you create that free market for religion, where a variety of people and 201 denominations, 300,000 different churches, and that's not even counting all the little nuances within, you create a context in which people do not have to wrestle anymore with things or ideas that you do not agree with. You now get to choose your own path, and in some ways, and this is, this is where sparking conversation gets dangerous, are we putting ourselves in essentially the place of what authority is? There's all sorts of implications for that. One of the biggest implications of this is Jor and I actually agree on some things. I want to go to the same church that Jor does. And we actually believe theologically, morally, ethically, aesthetically. Uh, we believe on the same things. I like, and we now get together, and you, you like the same things I like. We, we believe the same things. And we get to create a community around those things that we already share. And guess what? You get to do the same thing, and you get to do the same thing. And thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of people get to do the same thing. The shopping aspect of church, of religion, where I get to shop around for the thing that meets me, leads to the second aspect, which is what's known as sorting. Which is the idea that I get to now find people of which they also have very similar ideas and frameworks and thinking that I did. And so we are not only shopping for faith, the communities in which we are a part are now sorting themselves out into liberal, traditional, conservative, progressive, mainline, evangelical, sub-evangelical, post-evangelical, ex-evangelical, all sorts of different ways. We are now sorting, and we find our communities, and we find our niches together, and we get to form those communities. And those communities then become insular. They become identities of who we are. And then we get to say, this is what's really true and right and real. And have you ever complained about another church? 
No, nobody here has ever complained about another church. You have never said one bad, critical thing about another religious expression. Of course you have, because that's how identities work. We're not that because we're this. There's this famous joke that many of you may know about a man who is stranded on a desert island. He's rescued, and, he's, and the rescuers say to him, I see that you have built three huts. What are these three huts for? He said, well, one of them's my house, and one of them's my church. And the gentleman says, so what's the third building for? It also has a cross on it. He says, oh, that's the church I don't go to. <laughs> and so we get to sort. Do you like a charismatic, expressive, emotive Expression of faith? Well, guess what? You've got your options and you get to choose them. Do you like something more traditional, something uh, much more high church, something that looks more religious, sacred spaces, uh, you know, high cathedrals, uh, very orderly, purposeful? Do you like that? Well, you can do that. Maybe you don't like institutional church at all. Well, guess what? You can start a church in your home. And now we just add multiple denominations. Shopping leads to sorting. And then the sorting, of course, leads to safeguarding. Oh, sorry, one, one more thing. The sorting piece is found in all sorts of different expressions, but one of those expressions I think is really fascinating. Timothy Beale, in his book, The Rise and Fall of the Bible, talks extensively about value-added Bibles. Value-added Bibles. In other words, the Bible is no longer sufficient. <laughs> I now need a... Beautiful word, coloring Bible for teenage girls. That's the Bible for you. I need, I need an everyday life Bible. Um, I'm really into leadership, so I need a leadership Bible by a leadership guru. And then, of course, my favorite, the Jesus Bible, because none of those other Bibles have Jesus in them. There's the daily devotional. I mean, these go on and on and on. The shopping has led to a sorting, and I see this playing out. Hopefully, you see this, too. It's like I get to choose, and I get to pick, and... and these are things that are close to me. Okay, shopping, sorting. What's the last thing? Safe. Safeguarding. As a result of the sorting and the identity and the meaning and the purpose that we get from that particular expression of faith, well, what do we have to do but protect it? Because I have poured my heart and my soul and my identity and my way of thinking into that way of being. This is what it is. This is what faith means. This is how I read the Bible. And dare anybody challenge that? I am going to protect this at all costs. And even if I am wrong, I would never admit it. Because that would be a concession to my identity, my expression of faith. I, I can't think of a perfect, more perfect example of this than the famous Scopes trial of 1925. For those of you who don't know, there was a gentleman... Uh, by the name of John Scopes, who was teaching evolution in Dayton, Tennessee. Now, you would think that, why is that such a big deal? Well, Tennessee had passed a law called the Butler Act that says you should not, and in fact, it was a law, that you cannot deny a religious person's expression of, you know, biological realities, etc. And John said, forget that, I'm still teaching evolution. So they went to court. It was this big, uh, famous trial uh, still to this day. And one of the things that characterize this trial and why it was so important um, is not because the question is, did Scopes break the law? Because he did. The question is, what is the place 
of religion within the context of education. And uh, Edward Larson, in his brilliant book, Summer of, uh, for the Gods, writes this, that Clarence Darrow, who is John Scopes' attorney, was not content with simply questioning popular notions of criminal responsibility, but delighted in challenging traditional concept of, concepts of morality and religion. In other words, the trial really wasn't about Scopes at all. It was about the Bible, and it was about religious folks. And it was about what kind of influence and place do they have within the culture. Now, as I mentioned, Scopes was found guilty. But as historians will tell you, Christians, William Jennings Bryan being the prime prosecutor, won the case, but lost the cultural war. From the 1920s, there was a huge split between people who believed certain, had certain convictions about the Bible and how that was to be expressed and quote-unquote the rest of the culture. I know it's more complicated than that. But instead of, and here's the thing that's so fascinating to me, instead of asking the question, did we get the science wrong? Out of that embarrassment, public embarrassment, Christians began doubling down on, here's the key word, fundamentals. Fundamentalism some scholars would point back to the 1925 trial and said, we were so embarrassed by that particular, because again, he was just making fun of Christians. Do you really believe that I came from, you know, do you really believe in Noah? Do you really believe Jonah was swallowed by a wheel? Do you really believe these, all this was on trial? Christians began to get more defensive. Again, here's the safeguarding, but this is my Bible. This is what I believe and this is how I see it, and this is how I understand my faith and my religion as a result of that. Fundamentalism emerges on the scene then as a way of saying, this is what we believe, and we're not moving away from that. And it's fascinating to me that almost 100 years later, we're still, for many pockets, still arguing evolution. In recent years, that same protectionism and safeguarding has developed into a whole movement called apologetics. What's fascinating to me is that if you read first, second, and third century apologetics from early church fathers like Tertullian and others, they will tell you, I'm going to tell you why we believe what we believe, because Jesus rose from the dead, and he commissions us to love our neighbor and to care for the poor and those who are on the marginalized, and that's why we do what we do. That was the apologetic. The argument was who Jesus was and how I was commissioned to live into this world. Rome, you want to know why Christians believe and behave this way? Why do we call foreigners brothers and sisters? Why do we go out of our way to tend to the sick? Here's my apologetic, my argument for why we do that because of Jesus. It's obviously much more complicated than that, but that was apologetics in the first, second, and third centuries. But what apologetics has become in recent is a defense against an ideology, a defense against, I know that God exists and the Trinity is true, and etc. And you just go down the line, and books and all sorts of movements have emerged upon the scene to defend this is what is true. Right. And there's no slowing down because all of those books published in the 80s have been reissued in the 2000s. <laughs> Every single one of them. Oh, wow. Have you ever wondered why Christians sometimes believe? that they are under attack? Have you ever wondered why there's this defensiveness sometimes with religion? Have you ever wondered why some 
segments of American religion buy so deeply into a power grab. If you've ever wondered why my proposal, shopping, sorting, safeguarding. It's the natural tendency of our humanity to do this. And in some sort of weird paradoxical move, that which started in the 18th century as a separation of church and state has now become what I've called the disestablishing of the disestablishment, the <laughs> remarriage of religion and power. Now, this is obviously mirrors uh, the culture. Um, Liliana Mason's brilliant book, Uncivil Agreement, goes through this in greater detail with all the charts and all the studies that you would ever want. And she talks about choice, loyalty, identity. She uses this phrase, mega identities, where my sexual identity, my racial identity, my political identity, my geographical identity all converge into this one mega identity that you will never, you know, uh, ever attack. And then, of course, threat management. And then people get angry because I'm being attacked. You know, lather, rinse, and repeat. So if you are interested in that. But she basically says that what's been happening throughout American politics is is this movement from the free market. And so we have things such as this. Okay. Have I upset enough of you? (laughs) We need to bring this to a close. But again, my hope in sharing all this is not to tell you that this is what Spark believes. (laughs) I don't know if you took something away from that. That's great. But I'm deeply curious. How did we get here? What are the forces that are at work? And maybe that will help me understand why we're in the mess that we're in. And so my first opening pitch for why Jesus is because shopping, sorting, and safeguarding is what I would suggest to you, the the, kind of the, the marriage of our faith, this movement of Jesus that so radically transformed the world with this free market idea and the sorting and the safe, that marriage is Christianity's or religion's slow fade into compromise. (laughs) Into an an expression of faith. (laughs) Into an expression of faith that was not originally designed to be this way. And these... Okay, I'll I'll get rid of that. Sorry. Uh, Now... That's my proposal. Again, we're sparking conversations. You might disagree with this. That's the point. Let's have a conversation because I want to understand better. You might have some perspectives that would be helpful. Um, I would like to leave you with this quote from Harvey Cox, The Future of Faith, a brilliant book, which has helped give me hope. It's like when I read this stuff and I think about the sociopolitical sorting that is happening, when I think about the conflict, when I think about the arguing, when I think about the the free market capitalist idea that has invaded how faith should live, it, it really kind of brings me to some despair. It's like, does the way of Jesus have any relevance anymore? And I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to say, of course it does. But then I read someone like Harvey Cox, who has done some amazing work, and he sums up the faith of the earliest Christians in this. The faith of the earliest Christians combined that of the Old Testament with the Christmas story, the other accounts of Jesus' life and the Passion and Easter stories, like basic stuff, right? Their faith took the form of a loyalty to Jesus rather than Caesar 
and hoped that the new world of shalom, Jesus personified, would one day appear in its fullness. This is what they were going for. They lived their faith in fellowships that even amid fierce persecution needed neither creeds nor clergy. It wasn't institutionalized. It was this radical movement. And then here's the depressing but hopeful statement. But by the time Constantine became emperor, much of that original lifestyle had already begun to corrode. Hierarchy began to replace fellowship and belief to replace faith. In other words, my friends, the church has been here before. We have gone through multiple iterations of a faith expression that captivates our hearts and our minds and our attention, radically upending, transforming the world, reaching out to those who are on the margins, making sure that all are welcomed and invited into this glorious kingdom that that Jesus was moving towards, the advancement of justice and compassion and mercy in this world. That movement, slow fading into some sort of cultural compromise, has been happening throughout our history which gives me not only despair, but also hope. Because we're still here today talking about one question. Why Jesus? That is the fundamental essence of why Spark exists. And so, in short and in summary, we're going to spend the rest of our series talking about this. My quick summary is, Jesus was never about the market, but always about the kingdom. There was a movement of people, not a selection process of which ideology or faith expression you liked the best. The kingdom was about everybody. Rather than sorting, there was this whole new idea called koinonia, called fellowship. And it's kind of like, I was thinking like an Oprah gift away, like you're in the kingdom and you're in the kingdom and you're in the kingdom and you're, like everybody is in. Fellowship meant that if you were a human being, you were in. You belonged. You were loved. You were created in the image of God. Amen. So from sorting, we moved to fellowship. And from safeguarding, there was this big push with Jesus to rescue the world, to bring justice and hope and compassion and love to the entire world. Our faith expression in American religion is about shopping, sorting, and safeguarding. But this... I mean, Rajesh's story was so beautiful. There's nothing safe about stepping outside of your comfort zone and following Jesus into loving those who, have, who are left on the side. There's nothing safe about that. And there's nothing safe about talking about justice and immigrants and racism within the church when people are going to leave and then take their giving with them. You know about this in the church but we're not trying to be safe. We're trying to follow Jesus, which is going to be unsafe at times. So, my friends, my, uh, my hope and my prayer is that as we go through this series and hear additional stories and testimonies, each and every one of us are challenged to keep our free market, capitalistic, cultural conditioning in check. And to ask the question, what is Jesus calling us to? Who is he really? And how could that movement of Jesus transform everything all over again? And I hope you will join us for this journey. It's going to be amazing. I mean, 
Rajesh's testimony, the others that are coming, the other pastors and teachers that are going to be sharing, will hopefully give all of us multiple diverse handholds as to why this is so important and how it could transform the world. We're going to shift into a time of communion and we're going to invite you to the table. Everyone is welcome. We do this table because it is the representation of Jesus' blood and his body. And we all eat at the table because this is kingdom work. This is koinonia fellowship. Everyone is welcome. And we hope that your time with us is a movement not of safeguarding your identity, but of being rescued into something wonderful and beautiful. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at the table as we sing. Spark, may you be captivated once again by the life, the ministry, the words, the teachings, and the legacy of Jesus. And as we are together as a community, once again inspired by his movement, may all the conditioning that we have been under of free market American religion, may that slowly fade into the distance. And may you, Jesus, be lifted high in our midst, in our community, in our hearts, and most of all, in this world. Amen.